welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Eric Partaker, a McKinsey consultant, tech executive, and entrepreneur turned peak performance expert. After a life-altering experience, Eric decided to refocus his priorities on the things that matter most, and he figured out a way to consistently and effectively execute on those priorities. In our conversation, we cover his insights into the power of identity, productivity strategies, and anti-fragility. These ideas can enable individuals to excel beyond measure while still being in control and balance. We hope you enjoy the show. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time. Really excited. You know, I first got to hear about your story and your book listening to another podcast and I was uh, on a run and it really struck me kind of the things that you had learned kind of along the way during your career as well as through some of your life experiences. But first off, for the benefit of our audience, if you could give a little bit of background because, you know, starting off career with McKinsey is kind of a notable first step. That's an organization whose name carries a lot of weight. And so if we could get a little bit of your background, then would love to, and then maybe that would go right into that wake-up moment that you had. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. So yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on. And thanks for um, you know everyone who's listening. Appreciate your time. So I've had a, a quite a varied journey in, in life lived in a bunch of different countries, started off, uh, have pursued uh, lots of different types of career moves, uh, you know, quite different things. So started off as a consultant with McKinsey and Company, worked in the Chicago office for a while, in the um, Oslo, Norway office for a while. Then I ran a McKinsey-sponsored nonprofit. Our aim was to stimulate entrepreneurship and new business development throughout Norway. So, so did that for a bit. And uh, then uh, moved down to London joined Skype in its very early days. We were about 30 or so people. Helped, you know, with the blitz scaling of that company. We grew from 30 to 500 people. And during that time, had a exit to eBay for about $4 billion. And after that, you know, thought, okay, well, what do I want to do next? And having grown up on, you know, Mexican food in Chicago, I thought, <laughs> well, I miss Mexican food. So, so, and there was nothing in London. So then I, um, I applied what I had learned at Skype. Um, you know, Skype succeeded where voice over IP had previously not really taken off because we got the product quality right. It was vastly, you know, superior to anything on the market at the time. It was about 15, 16 years ago. And, um, and it was all wrapped up in a brand that people really loved. You know, our tagline was uh, the whole world can talk for free. And so I applied that thinking to the, Mexican, you know, quick service restaurant space and ended up creating a, an award-winning brand in the UK, which became a national uh, chain of restaurants focused on product quality with a strong one-word distillation around the word vibrancy. And that was an incredible journey. So, uh, you know, learned all the, the ups and downs of, you know, hands-on entrepreneurship. And sadly, you know, the restaurant chain, like so many other uh, restaurant chains, you know, here in the UK, as well as, you know, travel businesses um, didn't survive the lockdown. We, you know, we're, we're now actually in our third lockdown. So it's been a zero to minimal revenue environment for many businesses for, for nearly a year now. So the common thread, though, throughout all of that has been an obsession with uh, peak performance, with, you know, realizing your full potential. And, you know, my mission these days is 
to help people to realize their full potential. And Abraham Maslow, you know, the preeminent psychologist uh, came up with his hierarchy of needs. And, and he said that, you know, our path to deepest fulfillment lies in becoming all that we're capable of being. But his shocking statistic was that only 2% of people achieve that, you know, reach, reach their full potential. So, so my mission is to solve what I think must be the world's biggest problem then, which is let's get more of that 98% into the 2% camp uh, because there can't be a problem on the planet we can't solve if everyone's kind of operating at their full capacity. So yeah, that's just very, very, very you know quick background. But I'll, I'll I'll pause there for a moment before continuing. Yeah, no, thank you. And it's a, it's a great point to make that I think Maz also has that saying: "What one person can be, they must be." And it's incredible, kind of the large number of people maybe working in areas where they do not feel like they're living up to their potential, nor are they on the right path. You know, I have countless kind of inquiries from friends who are still working, I guess, more or less traditional finance, private equity, or consulting jobs, trying to figure out what their next step is and how to kind of free themselves to become their quote-unquote best selves. Of course, those are my paraphrasings. But so I think this conversation will be very well received. But I guess switching over into kind of that wake up moment where you're on a flight. I thought that was, yeah. um, that was key. So yeah, that's the journey and it's been far from perfect. So the first half of my career came, you know, very painfully. I was working, you know, sometimes hundred plus hour work weeks at McKinsey and company, you know, the, the environment, um, helping build, you know, a company like Skype, building your own businesses, all very uh, intense environments, especially when you have a, you know, very kind of driven, determined personality. And how that manifested for me is that about 10 years ago, I was boarding a return flight to London. And after the cabin doors closed, you know, the plane reached uh, its cruising altitude. And I mean, actually, it was right after the cabin doors closed, I could sense, I, mean, I hadn't been feeling well for months prior, actually. And, um, but I could sense something wasn't right and um, started to develop a lot of pressure in my chest and the plane reached cruising altitude. You know, so that pressure became pain, went through my left shoulder, down my left arm, you know, sweating, nauseous. Uh, my friend and colleague sat next to me, you know, felt my left arm and said, geez, you know, it feels like it's been hanging in a meat locker. It was, felt like it was like several degrees colder than the rest of my body. And so I knew something was something was up, something was going down and it wasn't a good thing. And um, my friend uh, called for one of the stewardesses to come over who then asked if there was a doctor on board. Luckily for me, there was one. The doctor rushed up. I remember he rushed up from the back of the plane and uh, took my vital signs and then said, you know, we need to land the plane immediately. I think he's having a heart attack. And when you hear those words, you know, 35,000 feet in the air, you're about as far away from help as you can you know, possibly imagine. Well, I mean, I guess I could have been an astronaut, right? And a little bit further away <laughs> from help, but it's pretty far. Yeah, there is something about that setting too, right? I mean, if you think about it, it's already a slightly uneasy setting for a lot of people. I'm not talking about being afraid of planes, but you know, if something even slightly goes off, that's like not the setting you want to be in. And so that was really terrifying. And I thought my heart, um, you know, it stopped completely just before reaching safety. The descent of the plane felt like an eternity. And um, emergency landed in a small town in France somewhere. 
and emergency response team boarded the plane. They took me into a waiting ambulance where they administered nitrates to open up you know, the arteries, increase blood flow to the heart. And then as the ambulance sped off to the local hospital, I looked up into the eyes of the paramedic looking down at me and I said, please don't let me die. I have a five-year-old son who's now 15. And he said, just relax. You know, I think we got you you know, just in time. So the next morning when I woke up, obviously this is a massive wake-up call, right? And you know, I appreciate you know, people listening right now. You may think, okay, well, I can't you know, relate to that. I, you know, I, I've never put myself in a situation like that. And I mean, look, I, I certainly wouldn't want to wish a you know, potentially catastrophic you know, health scare on anybody. You know, good if you haven't been through that. That's great. But I also know that probably nearly everyone listening at some point, though, has looked in the mirror and said, you know, something needs to change here. And whether that's been met with a catastrophic consequence or not, it's kind of not the point. It's about taking agency of your life, you know, the future of your work, your life, and, and making a change. And that's what that event did for me. So, you know, I guess I'm trying to say, don't get caught up in the event. Just zero in, in on, can you relate to the need to do something differently, you know, to make a change, to, to do something so that you can gain entry to that 2% club, those that reach their full potential. So that's the thinking that was going in my head the next day when I woke up in the hospital. And I thought, I still want to perform at my best. And when I say peak performance, you know, I don't mean becoming a Ferrari, although that's probably what I had thought in the decade prior to that event. But I mean more, how do you achieve your best multidimensionally? Because I thought, when I reflected back, I thought, it's really interesting. Three things came together. One, it was my approach to work, which got me into that situation. So then, therefore, obviously, work is very important, although my approach to it was unhealthy. But work is important. It was my health that was ready to fail. So obviously, health is important. But yet, the first things out of my mouth in the ambulance, it wasn't, please don't let me die. I need to clear out my inbox. You know, it was, please don't let me die. I have a five-year-old son. So... When you feel like that's all she wrote and, you know, it might, might be lights out, it's the relationships that are super important. So I really zeroed in on that moment on how do I become my best on all three fronts, on the health front, on the wealth front, both making the money and investing the money, and on the relationship front, health, wealth, and relationships. How do I show up at my best across all three of those domains? Mm-hmm. And and when you just out of kind of curiosity, but, you know, because you look like a very healthy person, did the heart attack kind of come about because of, at the time, you didn't have enough time to allocate towards, you know, exercise or eating right, or, or was stress like a major factor? Yeah, it was a all of that. So, it was a combination of overworking, way too much cortisol going through the body, you know, because you're stressed, you're not resting. If you don't rest properly, you don't clear, you know, all the stress harm. You don't clear your system, and that's you know everything just continues to build. Wasn't exercising properly, wasn't eating properly, and wasn't you know present and you know available as I should be, right, on the relationship side of things. So I think you know all of those things together came crashing down. You know, you referenced at the beginning of our chat. You know, my book, so in the, in the new book that I've written, The Three Alarms, I talk about how one of the simple things I did was I literally set three alarms on my phone and I chose a best self-identity 
in each of those three domains, health, wealth, and relationships. And again, when I say wealth, I mean both making the money and investing the money, right? So work and whatever you do with it. And I thought, well, if I could have a target, something that is me, you know, defined by me, something aspirational at my best in each of those domains, and then I'll have the most relevant part of my day powered by that identity. So almost like, you know, I have like a dream team of supporters each and every day. It's not just me, but me plus three. And so for, for years, you know, these alarms go off on my phone and they're like intentionality reminders. So 6.30 a.m., the first alarm goes off and it says world fitness champion. Not because I'm a world fitness champion, but that's the version of me who goes and you know, exercises in the morning and the version of me who doesn't quit during the workout. 9 a.m., the next alarm goes off and it says world's best coach because that's what I do these days. You know, I specifically work with high achievers who are still hungry for more but want to do it without feeling you know, out of control or overwhelmed. So that reminds me, well, how do I need to show up in the course of my day to you know, really serve those people? And then the game changer for me is at 6.30 p.m., or you know, was for me at 6.30 p.m., it says world's best husband and father. That's, that's what goes off on my phone to prompt the question, well, how would the world's best husband and father walk through that door right now? Because when you bring that kind of intentionality into the day, and cue it at the right time. It just changes the way you show up in the same way that if I put you in a shooting range and you're blindfolded and I don't care what kind of quality marksman you are. And if I say, okay, hit, try, go, go ahead, shoot, try to hit the bullseye. You know, you're not going to get anywhere close to it. But if you weren't blindfolded and you at least knew where the target was, even if you're not a great marksman, your shot's going to come way closer, no matter how skilled you are, by having a target than had you just literally been blindfolded and let a round off, right? So that's kind of the, the thinking of it. We, we need something to measure ourselves against because otherwise we have no chance of you know, closing any gaps between our current or you know, and best self in each of these domains. Yeah, no, I, I think it's extremely powerful, the, the power of identity and, and just imagining yourself as that someone you want to be will push you towards the taking the right actions. Do you, and I imagine after time, you having done this for so long that, uh, you know, maybe it's ingrained, like once that time of day hits, you automatically kind of convert into kind of where you're putting your focus. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the alarms aren't, they're, they're sort of like training wheels. After repeatedly cueing yourself day in, day out, you start stepping into the phone booth and changing into the superhero costume without, you know, the call for help or, you know, or um, uh, the alarm to, to remind you. And there's a counterintuitive principle, though, that goes much deeper, that really underpins everything that I do, you know, when working with people and um, that I communicate in the book. And you know, the key thing I like to challenge or get everyone listen, you know, listening to think about is what if the opposite was true? What if you have it all wrong? What if everything that you think you should be doing, you got it all backwards? Let me explain. And for me, this is like another phrase I use here is flip the script. So why does that all work identity-wise? Well, it's because behavior follows identity rather than I need to behave like something in order to become something. No, no, no. Pick who you want to be first. 
because the behavior follows identity. It's the other way around. It's sort of like when I, yesterday, a Captain America uh, costume arrived in the mail. I gave it to my seven-year-old, Leo. I did not need to do an instructional training session with him afterwards, teaching him how to be Captain America. When the <laughs> costume went on, boom, he was like, go ahead, pop up. You know, he wanted me to get the Nerf gun and start you know, shooting the uh, Nerf things at the shield which was pretty amazing because it had, you heard all the metal pinging off. <laughs> so, so, you know, behavior follows identity. Let me give you one more example. People will say things like, I need the courage in order to do this thing, you know, to, to step into this fear. No, you, you got it the wrong way around. It's actually stepping in because you're going to be waiting forever and your and courage is never going to arrive. It's not going to come knocking on the door. Confidence is not going to be, like, oh, I'm here. You know, or thanks, you know, I'm glad you're a prime member. I, I, I arrived next day or same night. That doesn't happen. It's actually stepping into the thing that's uncomfortable. That is what builds courage. And when you really embrace that, that's what builds confidence. When you really embrace this, then you start walking through your day, noticing all the courage builders throughout the day, the little weights presented to you, you know, in the gym of life, so to speak, whereby if you step into them and actually complete the repetition, if you will, do the thing that's uncomfortable, take the bold action. That's how you build courage. That's how you build confidence. And then ultimately momentum. And this is incredibly critical when you're thinking about doing something new, for example, launching a new business, going into a new career, changing up your life. You step into these things to develop you know, courage. And then I'll give you last one other example of flipping the script. And it relates to our feelings and, and actions. You know, and I define this as a difference between a professional and an amateur. Again, you embrace this, just this concept alone, life-changing. So an amateur believes that they need to feel like doing something in order to take action. This person does not achieve much in their life. A professional takes action whether they feel like it or not. Or said another way, a professional knows that it's action that generates feeling rather than needing to feel like something in order to take action. They get way more done. And they still get the feelings that everyone wants anyways, but it's just that they go about creating them rather than waiting for them to happen to them. Does that all make sense? <laughs> no, that's, that, that's great. I guess uh, earlier in the conversation, I'd mentioned how you know friends of mine will reach out in hopes of kind of talking about what they should do next because I I had kind of left the a traditional path. And so they want you know, insight. But what about those folks that are already performing at a very high level in a given field and they want to become better in that specific field, whether it's management consulting, it's investment banking, it's private equity, it's, you know, being a tech entrepreneur. It may not be such a, you know, dramatic identity shift for them. That might not be what they're aiming for, but, you know, how do you kind of like still have something very inspiring in terms of, you know, focusing in on a, a new identity? Yeah, there's two camps of people that I work with. So one will be, and they're all high achievers, but, you know, one, you know, say it comes with a lot of pain, you know, I'm a horrible procrastinator, I need to fix this. And, you know, there's lots of things that need to be fixed. Then there's this other camp, like you're saying, where they just feel like, yeah, but there's still something more here. You know, I'm not I'm not operating yet at full capacity or, you know, I feel like, you know, I've hit a plateau or I'm slightly stuck. And 
I challenge the person who thinks that there still isn't a lot of room for improvement on the identity front. I, I always think there is, uh-huh. but there, there, there's a you know a simple framework that I use, which again is discussed in the book, and it's called IPA. So like the beer, but better for you. The I is for identity. We've talked about that piece, but often where I'll zero in on on this type of person that you're talking about is a little bit more on the productivity side and the anti-fragility side. So productivity in that, are they truly operating 80-20? Are they truly doing 20% of the effort for 80% of the result, boom, moving on to the next thing or focusing on 20% of, uh, you know, the things that they could be focusing on that will yield 80% of the benefits? You know, are they, are they being truly, truly productive and do they have productivity planned in their day? A lot of people do not plan or structure their days in a way that promotes productivity, actually tends to promote you know, chaos. On the anti-fragility side, that's about helping people turn the unexpected or any attacks, you know, to their courage or or confidence as the path, as I kind of alluded to with your know, previous examples, of becoming stronger. So it's about reframing their view of stress so that stress actually builds strength and is something to seek and to embrace rather than something to minimize and avoid. And again, this is a subtle mindset shift here, but it's a mindset shift. It's not a physical body shift. What I mean is your body already gets this. Stress a muscle, it causes it to grow, expose the body to germs and bacteria, builds the immune system. So you're already anti-fragile, whereby stress builds strength. You know, the more hits you take, the stronger you become. So we just need to get that operating up in your brain, you know, mentally, day in, day out, so that you're not victim to Mike Tyson's quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't want to be that person. You want to be able to take the punch and go, yeah, is that all you got? I'll take another. So yeah, it works slightly differently with those, those people, but you know, still a lot to be gained from the identity side as well, but also just going deep on the, on the productivity and uh, anti-fragility side. Got it. Well, I, I think we're just about up on time here. Before we close out, and you know, want to thank you again for taking the time. I, I know it's quite busy these days uh, on your end. Where can people learn more about you? And I presume the the book, which is fantastic, everyone should get it. I presume it's on on Amazon and and uh, anywhere else you can find the book. Yeah, yeah. So two things. So one, thanks again if you've listened all the way to this point. Appreciate it. If you want to go deeper into any of the stuff that we discussed in the podcast, you can go to Amazon and get the book. That'd be great if you buy it from Amazon, <laughs> but I'll give you another another option too. If you head over to my website at Eric with a C, Partaker, P-A-R-T-A-K-E-R, like it sounds, ericpartaker.com, my best-selling book, The Three Alarms, the one we've been talking about, I'm offering a free digital copy there through the website. So you can pick up a free copy there or go to Amazon. And then last but not least, if you are a high achiever and yet you are still hungry for more, want to do better, or want to overcome anything that you think is inhibiting you gaining entry to that 2% club, operating at your best, also head over to the website. Feel free to get in touch via the site. And I'd be happy to you know, have an initial chat with you and see um, how I can help you. Awesome. We'll also include this in the um, in the text portion uh, of the podcast. But uh, once again, Eric, thank you so much. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you, and really appreciate it.